The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right. Well, my guest today is, I never get nervous doing these interviews, but I was actually had difficulty sleeping because I'm so excited to have my guest today. He, in my mind, is one of the great, if not the greatest geniuses of the 20 and 21st century. He's had the biggest impact on me, his work, both in terms of neurolinguistic programming, design, human engineering, persuasion engineering, I believe you have charisma enhancement, has changed the lives of millions of people. Uh, besides my mother, we Jewish boys always have to give credit to our moms. <laughs> He's had the biggest influence on my life. So I want to introduce Dr. Richard Bandler. Richard, it's so amazing to have you on the show. Well, it's nice to see you again. It's been a while, but you were always somebody I liked, and every time... You know, people came up and people used to say bad things about you. And I would always go, that's not my experience. <laughs> you well, were my experience smart, is... helpful, and very supportive of me early on. Thank and you. I always appreciated that. Well, my experience of you is not only are you this world-class genius, but you have always had a heart of gold to me. I think you have a heart of gold, in, and a lot of people have never recognized this. You're also a contrarian. You like to flip things on their heads say, wait a minute, that's not the way things work. This is, this is bullshit. Uh, let's take a completely different view. I would be remiss to my audience if I didn't talk about how I was first introduced to Richard's work. So way back in 1988, I was suffering from a condition I call involuntary celibacy. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was in therapy at the time, psychoanalysis three times a week. And the psychoanalyst said, well, you know, Essentially, this comes down to we have to heal your wounded inner child. And I thought, wait a minute. I said, You're, are you telling me that I have an entity inside me, a separate entity with its own consciousness, its own authority, its own feelings, its own ways of behavior? So he said, yes, that's exactly right. And I swear, I remember thinking, I don't need a therapist. I need an exorcist. So I quit. <laughs> and. And then I was really looking for a solution to the problem. I remember going through the self-help section of a bookstore. My hand literally floated up. I didn't even see the book. It floated up and grabbed a copy of Transformations, which was a book you co-wrote with your co-founder at the time, your partner at the time, John Grinder. 
And that book blew my mind completely. I thought, I have to meet Richard Bandler. So I had a friend at the time, Glenn Ackerman. I don't know if you remember Glenn or not, uh, but Glenn said, Richard Bandler is doing a seminar in San Diego. They're doing a stage hypnosis show. You got to come see him. I went to the show, and I remember being hypnotized by a hypnotist named Don Wolf. And Don gave me the suggestion that every time you talk about Manuel Noriega, I would jump up and call you an asshole. <laughs> I remember doing that. And then you took me backstage, and I don't know what the hell you did. You dropped me into trance, and my fear of women went away. I no longer had the problem with involuntary celibacy. So thank you. That was an amazing, amazing thing you did for me. Well, it was my gift to you and probably a few women. <laughs> <laughs> More than a few. So uh, for our audience who've been living in a cave or just have never heard of NLP, I know you've been asked this a, a thousand times, 10,000 times. I've got to ask for the benefit of my audience, what is NLP? Neurolinguistic programming uh, is now 52 years old. And originally, what we did was we were, John Grinder was a, a syntactician, a linguist, linguist, a modeler, and I was a mathematician. And, uh, and we took the skills uh, that were math, mathematical that were developed by a guy named Noam Chomsky, who had mapped how language actually works neurologically, not psychologically, and uh, that it was about how people really spoke and understood and there's a neurological foundation. It's universal. It's the same in every language. And uh, they, they map how language is, is similar in structure at the unconscious or, or neurological level and uh, mapped out so that you could predict what, whether people without any knowledge of grammar, except as well-formed English or well-formed German or well-formed French or Indonesian or any language, what we understand our language to be and how those are different. And those maps were actually a map of neurology more than a map of language. We then started modeling psychotherapists and looking at all the schools, there were like 130 schools of psychotherapy and different schools of psychoanalysis, all saying they had the right approach and none of them getting any results systematically. But sometimes some therapists were better and statistically helped more people more of the time. So we modeled what they did when it worked and extracted it out of the theories because the theories were like kind of like what you described. They were anthropomorphic. They were most of them based on Freud, whether they agreed with Freud or not. They all accepted the idea that somehow or other growing up, you got broken and you had to go down and peel away the layers of your personality, find your real self, fix your wounded whatever. And, uh, and, and it, it didn't understand how we learn neurologically. So ultimately, we flipped it over and began modeling just excellence. We found people who got over phobias and found out what they did. People who got over fears found out what they did and then built a universal map that matched how we learn neurologically. So we studied a lot of neurological. We read every neurology journal there could be as a way of understanding how people learn and ultimately built the tools to model excellence. And that doesn't matter excellence in everything, excellence in memory, excellence in learning. We, I've written books on childhood education, books on sales, books on uh, how to change yourself. I have one called Get the Life You Want, 
That's like a cookbook. You go through and pick out what you, what you want, follow the formula, and the formulas work. Because if you can manipulate change the way you think, you can change how you're thinking neurologically. And that's what makes NLP last and be quick. Because we're focused on results. We're not focused on being right. If something doesn't work, then the problem is that we are not going about it right. So we change the way we're going about it rather than try to blame people for being too immature or giving them diagnostic names. When people come to me, sometimes they have case studies that are volumes, you know, and if you read it, it's really nothing but all the things that haven't worked and and all the descriptions that were unhelpful and calling somebody depressed when there's a million ways to be depressed. The question is not about how you understanding depression. The question is, how do you understand being happy? And so I, I didn't study fear. I study people who got over it and people who are more fearless and found out how they think and teach other people to think like somebody that's successful. Even little things like playing guitar. Some people learn guitar easier because the way they're thinking about it works better. Spelling, uh, you know, one of the things we did 40 years ago was figure out what good spellers did. And it turned out, you know, we went and found people who were winning spelling bees. And we found out they're making pictures of words about this. And the letters are about this big. Uh, you know, they're 10 to 16 inches. And they look at a little tiny word on paper. They make a big one in their head. They, you know, say it so that they understand. They say it in different contexts, right? And then they take the picture away and they look at it on paper, make sure the one in their head matches the one on paper, and then they memorize it. And these big constructed images, and we took kids that had learning disabilities and made them disappear in a week. Uh, uh, Math, you know, all kinds of things. And while everybody was talking about self-esteem, I've still never seen any. (laughs) <laughs> isn't yeah. that uh, just uh, to uh, contribute to your answer uh, when people say self-esteem it's almost like you're referring to some magical fluid and you're either uh, a quart low or your tank is empty but one of the things i learned very early on from you is people get trapped taking an empty and turning it into town so people look for self-confidence they look for a thing called self-esteem, a thing called courage. Am I getting this right that you're saying? Well, there's a trick in language that you can turn a verb into a noun, and then you start acting like it's a noun instead of a verb. And when, you know, people come in and I say they have frustration, I say set it on the table because they can't, because, you know, frustration is an activity. And not only that, you know, if somebody's depressed, I don't look at it as as being a problem. I look at it as a skill. And, you know, that if I did this, thought about the same things the same way they thought about it, I could be just as depressed as them. That's not something I want to learn to do, but I want to understand the difference between what they're doing and somebody who's happier. Because if people say, I just want to be happy, then I go, you need six more dwarves and an unconscious woman. <laughs> uh, you know, that it's not something you be, it's an activity. When <laughs> happily goes to the store and shops, and if you understand it's an activity, then you have to understand to do something with an, because it's really an adverb, you know, that's the way in which you do something else. Then you have to have a way of thinking about it to get there. 
You don't just do this and then you end up being happy. And if, you know, you're struggling with all of your energy in your life to achieve some state of consciousness that's going to last forever, you don't understand brain activity. I spent decades measuring the brain on things called mind mirrors. And the main thing I discovered was even in deep trance, people's brain waves don't hold still. They're constantly shifting from state to state. And the trick is to set up a state that gets you where you want to go. Most people are trying to not do something or they're trying to do something. You know, they, they, they want to have more confidence, but they don't. And so they try to figure out why. And if you figure out what causes it, then you only know how to be stuck. They don't make a target in their brain. The way the brain functions, in fact, I've, I've, I've spent a long time adjusting biofeedback equipment because most biofeedback equipment makes people worse, not better. They, they start to, you know, they put something on their fingers that measures whether they're getting tense or relaxed. And the little note, they go, it goes, and as soon as it starts to go down, it goes, because it tells you where you are. It doesn't tell you where to go. When you pick up something like this bottle, when your hand reaches for it, as your hand gets closer to it, it moves faster because the brain is accelerates towards results. Once it grabs it, then it knows that it has to open it. So it goes through this. As you move towards it, it's slower at first, faster at the end. And the same thing is true about towards your lips, because the brain works by accelerating towards a, a, a result. And this once a neurology is learned, it becomes ultimately faster and faster. But it always starts out and accelerates towards success. When you when in your brain, you go, you know, I, I want to stop thinking about this bad memory. Right then it doesn't tell you how to go about it. It doesn't tell you what you need to do. It doesn't tell you this procedure that gets you to stop thinking about something and feeling bad about it. And we have procedures in NLP. And over the years, these have gotten better, more clear. The more we understand neurology, the more we know how to give people instructions so that they they could, because the trouble with bad thinking is, you know, you could just call it stupid Right. But that the point is, is that it chews up your time all the time you spent worrying about what women were going to do if you approached them. When when I first met you, I basically what I did was get you to stop thinking about that and start thinking about thinking about it in a different way. So that, you know, the more times you walk up and say hello, the more likely you are to meet somebody you want to. And, uh, you know, it, you know. I did a flirting class once with a bunch of shy guys and, uh, you know, the, the, the problem wasn't, you know, the way they look, the problem was their beliefs. They had the idea that rejection was bad instead of thinking, if I walk up and say hello to this person and they reject me, God, I could, I dodged a bullet. I could have spent my whole life with somebody that unpleasant. (laughs) you know, and just move on and find somebody that likes you for who you are. And, uh, and the more you try to find out who you are, you're not figuring out who you want to be. You're not figuring out how to alter your behavior. And most of my classes teach people to control their voice, their body movements, everything, so that they can be more of who they want to be. And and instead of spending time on the inside, figuring out what's wrong with you, you pick targets and goals 
and get over things. It's not hard to get over things if you know how it's done mentally. And mostly people make pictures that are way too big and they make them feel bad. Uh, that's how most fears come about. And, uh, you know, and they run scenarios in their mind of bad outcomes. Imagine if a basketball player, because recently I've had a lot of major league players come to me who, as a result of COVID, got out of the rituals that perform success and started going into slumps when they started to play. And when they come to me, you know, I ask them, you know, what do you think about? And, you know, they'll tell me, you know, I keep thinking of this game where I made this big mistake, you know. It was a really important game, and I got too tense, and I started asking, you know, what could go wrong? And that's the wrong question to ask. Uh, You know, successful athletes rehearse in their minds successful things over and over again, you know, the night before while they sleep unconsciously, uh, you know, they don't think, you know, how can I miss this shot? They're thinking, what's the perfect shot, and what's the perfect way to go about it? Hang on just one second, uh, Richard. So yeah. you're saying, and I remember you said this in, in Richard Bandler's Guide to Transformations. You said you have a skill that I would love. I don't think we have time on this show to go through it. You said when you're learning something new, uh, when you go to sleep, you tend to rehearse it all night long in dreams. I would love to model that skill. That's an amazing thing. I'm learning to lucid dream. So I don't. I we don't have time to go into that. But that's, do you have a... a Well, to a certain degree, I believe everybody does this. The the thing is, is they don't set it up right before they go to sleep. So, you know, if they've done something and made mistakes, they have a tendency to rehearse the mistakes. Uh, Very early on when I was in college, I worked at a publishing house boxing books. I took a flat piece of cardboard, stuck a book in it, flapped it over went staple, staple, turned it over, staple, staple, put a label on it, threw it in a bag. I did that for eight hours. I went home and did it for another eight hours while I slept. And uh, that our ability, you know, where Freud said dreams were all meaningful, it's, it's what happens when our neurology is growing cortical pathways and to assume that there's too much meaning to it. So basically, before I go to sleep, I rehearse what I want to get better at. I do that as a musician. I, you know, I imagine the keyboard in front of me and I imagine myself doing it better than I can do it. And I run through it in my mind five or six times and go to sleep. And when I wake up, I can play better than when I went to bed. And I've been doing this, you know, most of my life with music. Uh, I found, you know, the same thing is true in art that I could get better painting that, you know, if I imagine myself having better control. And that, you know, by running through motor programs, this is how we learn them. And if you set up going to sleep, practicing things, you will always get better at it because your neurology will build the correct neurocortical pathways. If you rehearse doing things bad, then you'll get really good at being bad. And, uh, you know, this is why I didn't buy the psychology thing about reliving trauma. Because if once was bad, 100 times, it's going to be 100 times worse. Uh, you know, that the idea that you could go back and relive trauma and somehow or other the pain would disappear, it doesn't under, it's a total misunderstanding of human learning. We learn by building neurocortical pathways, right. millions and billions of them. We have as many neurons in our brain as there are stars in the sky, each one talking to 10 to 100 others. So the number of combinations is infinite in possibility. 
And, you know, we get a, 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 we get a phone, you know, I remember being young and having a phone number and AT&T wanting more area code. So they came in and gave me a new phone number. Yes. And, uh, you know, I remember trying to call home from the store because I forgot something. This is back when phones were attached to the wall and dialing the phone this way and, you know, and calling the old number and, and getting the, eh, this number's been disconnected. Stay on the line. We'll give you the new number. And they're going like this. And if you get angry, you keep doing it. But the time, as soon as you start laughing and imagining yourself dialing the right number, you'll do the right thing. You're going to look back and laugh. And my policy is why wait? Uh, And this is something I remember. You've said so many things that have struck me and changed my entire way of thinking. There was a seminar you did and it just hit me like a diamond bullet in the head. You said you can be thorough without being serious. Can you you unpack that for us? Because it's so brilliant. Well, a lot of people think being thorough is is being nitpicky, and it's not. Thorough is where you focus on the result and figure out the minimum number of things that it takes to get there. In mathematics, we call this elegance. It's the name of the principle. And uh, there's like a six-month math equation that proves this. Uh, I think it would be inelegant to go through it, to tell you the truth. That uh, to me, I've always found out what's the minimum it takes to get the maximum result. Uh, The ultimate example of that is language. Uh, There's only 26 letters in English, but yet you can describe an infinite amount of things with it. And uh, there's only 10 on-off switches in our voice that make all the sounds of English. You're either vibrating your vocal cords or not. You're either flicking your tongue, you're either parsing your lips or not. Those 10 off-on switches create all the sounds in English. And I think there are 12 in Russian and uh, some more in German. And I think Italian's got a different number. But if you can, you can literally build a little box with 10 switches and manipulate them to make the sounds in a language. And that, that minimum set and understanding what it is to get a result. That um, my description of human thinking in terms of submodalities and pictures and how big they are and how small they are, close they are, allows me to go in and teach somebody to override old neural cord pathways and build new ones that go further. So that instead of dwelling on something that goes on, because one, if you think about a bad memory for two minutes here and a minute there and a couple minutes here, and it adds up, you know, to 30 minutes or an hour a day, you know, this cost-wise is incredibly expensive. It's expensive for businesses. It's expensive for your life. The currency of living is how you spend your time, the quality of it. And if more of the moments of your day are unpleasant and unproductive, then you're going to stay poor and unhappy. Whereas if you can change those to productive moments and, and, and moments, because happiness, I wrote a book called The Secrets of Being Happy, And being happy wasn't about being giddy and jumping up and down and being a fool. Being happy was about having a purpose, having a good community of friends, having a good support system, you know, that the people that survived the worst of things in the world, like the Holocaust, came out the other side, functioning happy human beings, and a lot of them didn't. The difference between with them was they always had a plan that I'm going to get out of here. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to live. 
This is what's going to be a great life. And the others spent their time looking backwards. It was so miserable. It was so horrible. I, I watched people die. I, it was, it, it's a nightmare. I have nightmares every night about it. And this is the choice because it, you, you either dwell upon the past or you redesign the future every day. And if you redesign the future every day, and I get my clients, whether they're already successful or whether they're the biggest mess you could possibly imagine, because I've gotten referrals from psychiatrists that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that the only thing worse than what they did to themselves is what was done to them by all the psychological therapy they had, which I had overcome that, too, because they built beliefs that I'm the kind of person who. I'm just a depressed person. I'm just, whenever you hear the word just in English, it mathematically translates to only. And when people can only imagine being unhappy for the rest of their life, when they can only imagine women rejecting them, well, of course they don't have a plan to succeed. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to consider the possibilities as real possibilities, no matter how fantastic they are. And uh, I'm a good example of that. I grew up dirt poor. And, you know, I never believed you had to stay that way. And I never believed the government had to help me do it. I never believed anybody would help me do it, to tell you the truth. I was wrong about that because people have helped me along the way. But, you know, believing that, that you can go from nothing to having a lot and that you can struggle with all kinds of difficulties and get through them is because life is going to throw bad stuff at you. Yeah. Every love story there is, is going to end in tragedy at some point for some person. Somebody's going to die or somebody's going to leave. And if you can't imagine beyond where you are, that something, you know, that, you know, you either go, this is the end of everything. I mean, I, I was with a woman for over 20 years. when she I, had her way. I had the privilege of meeting her. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I couldn't, you know, I had no plan for what to do next. And so I, you know, I, I went downhill until I made one and uh, that, you know, it, it, it's, it's not something that neurolinguistic programming makes you immune to. You either decide to get smarter or you get stupider. That's how it works. And stupid's not bad. It's just redundant and it's time consuming. And now that a technology exists by which people can go beyond it, you know, I've had people read my books, you know, when Frogs and the Princess came out, I used to have a little P.O. box and, a, and it was in the back of the book and people could write me. People would send me postcards from the, the Grand Canyon saying for eight ninety five, I cured myself of my fear of heights after 12 years of therapy. Yes. Thank you very much. And uh, because it's the procedure, the protocol that works, it's not the person that does it. You know, they, therapists always say you have to be intuitive or inherently helpful or warm or empathetic and genuine and all of these, you know, things that are theories about what makes a good person to be a coach or an agent of change. And the truth is, it's the technology you have and your ability to be perceptive about how to use it and your ability to listen. Because most of my clients who had been in therapy for decades and came to me in the first session, told me exactly what to do if I listened to them. Yeah, I have the I have the insight because I've done a lot of change work with people. If you are empathic, you can actually you actually can get in the way because you begin to feel your clients' emotions and you buy into their story. 
And well, imagine if doctors had to do it. If you came in with asthma, and so they had to they had to start having asthma to help you. That would be ridiculous. And for, to think that you know somebody's going to help you, you know, the people that can help you are people that can see outside your box, not being stuck in the same box. You know, I mean, I can understand how my clients have problems because as I ask them questions, they describe their model of the world. We all don't experience the world directly. We build representations of it in our head. They're built out of neurocortical pathways. And if I understand your beliefs and what you can see and what you can't see and what you can believe and what you can't believe and what you can imagine and what you can't imagine, what you imagine way too much most of the time, I can understand how you're stuck where you are. It makes perfect sense. You know, uh, I had a, they made a film of me once. A couple of psychiatrists challenged me to see a client of theirs actually three of them. And in this film, uh, this woman comes in and I haven't met her. And the psychiatrist tells me that she's been in therapy with her for eight years or something. And they tried to make a vitamin treatments and drugs and all of this stuff because she has panic attacks when people are late. And, and, and when she came in, I, I asked her, I said, what exactly you know, would you like to have happen today? And she literally picked up her hands and goes, I have a problem I'm too close to. And I said, so how do you know when to panic? You know, if I was working for you and my job was to have your panic attack so you didn't have to, what would you tell me to do? You know, make an appointment at three and then throw myself on the floor. She literally goes, no, that would be ridiculous. She goes, you have to work your way up to it. You know how hard it is to find good help these days. And uh, she, she describes, uh, you know, how, you know, she sees an accident across the street and gets closer and closer and realizes it's the person she's going to meet. And, you know, until she's so close, the bones are sticking out of the skin and blood is splattering on her face. And that makes perfect sense to me. I'd have a panic attack, too, if I did that. My a horror movie. You know, she's writing a horror movie in her head. Right. And a really good one, too. She worked for Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, when I looked at her and I said, has it ever occurred to you to just not do this? And she said, well, I don't really think I knew I was. But, you know, once we learn something, it runs so fast unconsciously that, you know, if you don't slow it down, take a look at it and better than that, change it because it's running automatically. Neurocortical pathways work automatically. So the trick is, 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 is to run them backwards. So that flattens out the neurological charge. Because, you know, be it infinitely small, in neurocortical pathways out of the billions woven together, know which way to go by size. And so if you either connect them together or, or make them go somewhere else. And so very often, I'll just have people put a border around it. I'll go, you know, how, how big is this? Is this life size larger than life? And, and they go larger than life. And I go, okay, put a border around it. What's your favorite color? And they'll go blue. And I'll go put a two-inch blue border around it. Now shrink it down and take a brightness knob and turn it all the way white. Have them do it three times and then have them think about it and try and feel bad. And they can't do it because it just doesn't work anymore. You take a neurocortical pathway and it doesn't stop in the same place. It goes to what you added to it. And uh, very often bad memories, if people just put the border around it, it changes because it switches from being a remembered image to being a constructed image. You've talked uh, just in this brief exchange. For one minute, I have allergies. I'm in Texas. Well, I have a sinus infection, so we can exchange problems. 
In the brief time we've been talking, you've mentioned new neurocortical pathways and that there's so many different possible combinations. And you have said for years that language creates new neurocortical pathways. Science is finally catching up to you. Uh, so many people have said this ball. NLP is not scientific, and uh, you've said, well, it was not designed to be, but science is finally catching up to things you realized 40 years ago, which I think is a credit to your creativity. Uh, And do you think this contributes? What I know about you is you're an optimist. Despite the state of the world, is that correct that you're still an optimist? I'm 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 more severe than an optimist. Uh, people ask me, "Is the glass half full or half empty?" I go, "I'm asking where are the other glasses." Um, that I, I, to oversimplify things and name them isn't a solution. I understand. I'm solution driven, and the question I always ask about the solutions, even when I find them, is there an easier, faster, quicker way? Because as soon as you find something that even kinds of work or kinds of is a description, people have a tendency to stop thinking. Understanding doesn't produce the best result. And because when people say, when you're talking to somebody and they go, that means their brain just shut off. They have identified it and they're done. And that's not what I'm after. Uh, With me, when I listen to people, I don't want to understand them. I want, I, I, I want to understand what needs to be done to get them to somewhere new, somewhere better, somewhere more exciting, somewhere where they can start manifesting on the planet the results that they want. And that requires that you change the way they think. Uh, that book up behind me, uh, which is called, you know, which is a 15-day plan to get smarter, is, uh, is because when I wrote that book, my, all I wanted to do was to teach people how to, how to use their brain so that it became productive, so that they understand it's, it's not naming things. It's not going, oh, I'm depressed. It's making a new plan. Uh, any successful businessman knows that when things go south, like when COVID came along, you have to pivot and make a new plan. Uh, that's why we're all on Zoom these days. You know, podcasts became bigger business because people couldn't leave their house because the government didn't want us to build up our immune systems. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to backtrack to something. Sure. You, are, you are an extremely accomplished musician and you're a mathematician. So I, the question that occurred to me when I was prepping for this interview is in in what way has that influenced your development of NLP? And the second question, the follow-up question is, do you think you could have developed NLP if you were not a musician and a mathematician? Would you have been able to do what you've done? No. Uh, Understanding symbolic logic allowed me to separate content from form. That, you know, when I was in college and I studied symbolic logic, you know, that arguments can be valid, but aren't true. You can have ridiculous arguments, but they're valid arguments. You know, you know, the green, all green cats have to be on tables, you know, uh, you know, to begin presupposes there are green cats and, you know, and that they have to be on tables. And so if you go, this is a green cat, therefore it's on a table. 
is a is a logical argument, but it's not. Uh, it, it just simply is nonsense. And, and when I encountered the world of psychology, uh, I didn't come at it. I came at it as somebody that that did symbolic logic, that that was studying how to program computers back in the ancient days when it was a lot more painful than it is now. Uh, you know, when there was Cobalt and Fortran and you know, you went through step by step back when a floppy disk was this big, it was called an RKO5, and it held, you know, uh, like a, a thousand uh, bytes of information on it. So programs were, you know, enormously <coughs> expensive and equipment was tedious. And uh, it meant you it meant you had to be thorough, but you also had to be adventurous to get these things to work. Now, when I moved, because when I transferred from junior college to a four-year college, uh, I lived in a house owned by a psychiatrist, and I began reading the stuff that he had. And uh, I had had the experience in my college, they forced us all to be in like an encounter group, a counseling group. I, I don't know why they did this to us, but originally counseling, Guidance 50 had been where they show you where the library is, and stuff like that. And they switched it to where we had to all sit around and follow these T group feelings from the NTL labs and uh, Harvard, where, you know, they give you 30 pages of how to communicate congruently. And the first one was don't ask questions. And the first thing I did was ask why. And they, the guy goes, because behind every question is a feeling. And I, you know, and I go, yeah, my feeling is, this is a little load of nonsense. And uh, I have a low tolerance for stuff that doesn't doesn't fit, doesn't work. And, and, you know, as I read all these books, there was so little. I mean, there was like 150 books that I read and none of them said anything you could do other than drug people. And then there were some psychotherapies like rational motive psychotherapy and gestalt therapy and things, which when when I read the first transcripts of gestalt therapy, I found so funny. I, I had tears rolling out of my eyes and the psychiatrist came back from his trip. He had gone to India to find himself. I was going to tell him he was right here, but I got to stay in the house. Uh, but when he came back, he walked in. I had tears in my eyes, came up, put his arms around me and said, you know, I can introduce you to these people. And so I got to meet some of the best therapists in the world because he was their publisher. And uh, what I discovered is, these people had humongous theories and belief systems and very little results because they were so busy naming everything and defending their theories. I mean, they were all arguing about who was right when they couldn't systematically get a single result in anything, anywhere. Sometimes they got results, but they didn't examine when they got results and when they didn't. And right. think of it as being related to what's universal about all of this which is everybody in therapy has a brain and neurology. We didn't know as much about neurology as we do now. The last 50 years of neurology have been amazing. And uh, I, I, I get uh, articles all the time sent to me from neurologists and uh, some of the stuff they have discovered now about the multi-level layering of the brain and stuff, which they, you know, they used to look at as nothing. And they're now they're discovering this is how we code information. And, you know, back in those days, they were arguing about whether there was a mind-body split. And, you know, every time they said it, I'm visualizing an ax and wanting to. Uh, that, to me, it was just nonsense. And, and it, you know, if, if somebody comes in with a, with a phobia, 
and you say it's going to take six months to desensitize them, and and 70% of them end up with more phobias, and and maybe 30% are less phobic, right? But they're, you know, you're not getting it so that people don't have the fear, let alone, you know, uh, the first phobia results I got were from talking to people who had gotten over them, finding out what they did and had other people do the same thing, just mentally inside their head. And what I discovered is, is I could get them over it, but they still, you know, I'd go now go get in the elevator and they'd go, well, I, I'm not afraid, but I don't want to. And that's because they'd spent so much time being reticent of elevators. They go, I'll just take the stairs. And I'd go, it's 26 floors up, you know, and they go, they always sigh. They go, like they're resigned to living this way. So you had to learn how to get people to be excited about new challenges rather than just trying to avoid feeling things, you know, bad feelings, good feelings, make feelings work for them. You know, having a good, healthy fear of some things is useful in some situations. Rattlesnakes. I want to be afraid of rattlesnakes. Yeah. Well, uh, you, 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 you want to be calmly backing away. You don't right. out and move too much. Right. Uh, you know, a, a, good, a good, healthy fear of street drugs is a good thing. Right. For some people, that's what they need to stop. Uh, you know, right now we have we have some terrible drugs. The, the, the largest number of deaths now is not from COVID. It's from these horrible drugs coming up from Mexico. And, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, people between 18 and 24, the, you know, 100,000 people died of a terrible drug that could be stopped at the border and nobody's doing anything about it means that people are just not paying attention. And to me, you know, I only want to pay attention to what works, not the theories behind it. Uh, I remember in the last election, people going, well, we're just not that kind of person. You know, we, we don't want to just, you know, turn people away, you know, and I'm going, well, some of those people should be turned away and some should be let in. We need to have a good machine that's intelligent to decide which ones are which. And, you know, people have been immigrating to this country uh, my grandparents were immigrants. They escaped the Nazis. And I think that's a pretty good reason to get out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jew- Jewish immigrants, you know, uh, and it, it's not that they came here with a warm welcome by any means. No. But it, it, you know, sometimes you have to know, you know, you know, our basic neurology is designed around fight and flight. And uh, if it's if you're not down to that moment of fight or flight, to, to use that kind of reaction to avoid things that are not intrinsically dangerous. Elevators are, are literally the safest form of transportation there is. In San Francisco, which is where I was at the time I was doing this, I looked in the records and only one person had been killed in an elevator in something like 75 years, and it was an elevator inspector. Uh, wasn't somebody riding the elevator, somebody under the elevator. Uh, and so for people to be terrified of that, uh, you know, whereas there are different kinds of phobias, there are people who are afraid of heights. It doesn't work at all. Like the others, uh, heights are definitely connected with the way people who are afraid of heights are typically people who jump right out of bed in the morning and are highly motivated because they see themselves doing something and feel like they're doing it, which means if you see yourself jumping off the side of a building, you start to become terrified. So, uh, to me, learning to control your thinking so that you are running your brain 
has been the message of my career for 50 years. Change the way you think, it changes how you feel, and therefore changes what you're capable of doing. Not just what you're doing, but what you're capable of doing. Because some people are incapable of doing things because they don't have a machine in their head that tells them how to do it. Schools should be building good machines in our head to spell, to do math, to write, to draw, to do art. I got into doing art because I saw an artist by the side of the road uh, in London. Well, it was by the, on the Thames, actually. It was by the side of a river, drawing a tree on the other side of the river. And, uh, and I walked up and I said, how do you get the tree from over there to over here so perfectly? And uh, he literally said to me, he goes, well, this is going to sound crazy. And I said, well, you don't know who you're talking to. Nobody's talked to as many crazy people as I have. And he said that he imagined a hand just like his hand across the river with a big pencil. And as the pencil went on this, there was a wire that came all the way across the river to his hand. And so he just followed it and it told his hand what to do. Wow. Well, when I took art in school, they didn't tell me to do that. So when I drew a bowl of fruit, it looked like somebody sneezed crayons. And then they came up and went, oh, you are not artistic. <clears throat> a lot of bad post-hypnotic suggestions in our educational system. Yeah. And I tried to teach people that, you know, instead of going back and discovering why you can't do something, build a machine that tells you you can. And the more machines that are successful in your head, the more successful at the more things you'll be. Um, you know, that uh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of talent that's learnable. Yes. I wanted to ask you something because I want to turn towards sales. The show is is slanted towards sales and influence. One of the things that people always ask me is, how do I stay motivated? And I know you've talked about wanton motivation. Can you tell us, what do you mean by wanton motivation? Unbridled that uh, that most people look at something that's difficult and they go uh see uh when i developed my first sales training program uh i did it because a, a guy came in i had a client that came in and he i said you know because uh, most of the time i find skills by asking people the question what can you do well or what do you do for a living because in order to be able to do certain things so if you have somebody that's a medical doctor, you know, he's got good visual, visual memory. And so uh, I asked this guy, I said, what do you do for a living? And he said to me, he goes, I'm just a car salesman. And the way he said it was like he didn't approve of it. And I thought to myself, I said, that's crazy. You know, you go to college, you can get a Ph.D. in poetry, but they look at salespeople as 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 not having a technology, not there's not research done on how to do sales. And, you know, this was 50 years ago. So I decided to create it and literally went out, started selling cars and uh, started dis dis discovering who were the top, who, who were the most successful salespeople and modeling what they did, how they thought about what they did and how they viewed challenge. Can you unpack that for us? Because we, my audience would love to know what, the commonalities were. In, in well, the commonalities were real simple. And I'd seen it before because uh, 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 some of these things occur in other professions as well. But uh, let me tell you a little story. When I went in to do a training, there was a furniture store. And and I most salesmen, their close ratio in, in furniture is like 15%. 
which is odd because if people come into a furniture store, they want furniture. And so it, to me, I looked at that and I, I, I always try to get people to increase their clothes ratio as a goal, right? And not to worry about a single sale, but they need to be able to sell to more people, which means they need to have more than one pitch. If they use the same kind of pitch, it's only going to work with a certain number of people. And so they have to be able to read the person well enough to know how to adjust. And I asked this guy, I said, who can't you sell things to? And he, without hesitation, said, well, a lot of people come in and they bring somebody that knows more about stuff than they do. So if they're looking for a couch, they have a brother-in-law that, you know, knows, you know, has been buying, you know, furniture for, you know, you know, a generation more than them or, you know, or an older brother that bought furniture and knows what, you know, what to watch out for and salespeople and what to look for in good furniture or something nonsense like this. And when he said that to me, you know, when I said, so somebody brings in an extra person and you find it more difficult to sell because my brain is going, how do I sell both these guys something? You know, and if you ask the right questions, you start looking for the right answer. Because if the expert is going to make the decision, if I could sell him something, then the other guy's going to buy it too. Right. And so I have to, I have to know how does this, how does this guy make the decision that something is correct? Because if you think of yourself not as a salesman, but as a decision engineer, and you start finding out how do people make buying decisions? What's the, what's the difference between something they saw they almost wanted, but they didn't buy and something that they saw they wanted and they bought it? You'll discover that typically it's the size of the picture. It's how close the picture is. It tells you where to hold your brochures and it tells you how to talk to somebody. You know, some people, they have to be able to, to imagine themselves with it in their house sitting in it. And, you know, if the, if, if the person goes, well, you know, I bought this chair, I loved it, but I could really see myself sitting in it watching TV. And then you go, well, this, if this couch was sitting in there and you were on this couch watching television, laying down, seeing this, can you see that in your mind? Because people will tell you how to close a sale. Bad salesmen do the opposite. I went in to buy a digital auditory machine because I found out you could hook the one I had to another one and make copies and it would do it at high speed, digital auditory tape. And so I went to buy the exact machine I had walked in a stereo store where I bought the first machine, walked up and said, I want that. And the guy said, well, hold on a minute. Let me be honest with you today. Ah, as if they're not. That that's out of the ordinary for him to be honest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and to close that sale, all he would have had to say is OK and then go, what are you going to use it for? And then start selling you other stuff. And, uh, you know, when the guy started to give me bullshit about some machine that was better, which wouldn't allow me to make copies at high speed, uh, I finally said, I need to talk to your manager. And the manager came out. And I said, this guy won't let me buy what I want. And the manager said, what? And I said, oh, never mind. And I pointed to the 50 televisions on the screen and said, there's an ad for a better store in your store. You must really think they're a better space. And started to walk out. And the guy goes, well, Arnie goes, that's just cable TV. I said, well, if you're advertising another store in your store, does that sound smart when you sell video machines? 
And he went, no. And I said, you know, I could make you a video to help you to sell things. And I ended up with a job and a free piece of equipment. Now, most salespeople look at a difficult situation, not as an opportunity. And if you start to go, how would I have to adjust myself? See, with my clients, when I did something and it didn't work, I didn't go, it's because of the client. I went, I'm doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I need to listen to this guy closer and figure out what would work or go to somebody that had already done this in their personal life. I mean, I literally put an ad in the newspaper, how many people have gotten over an incredibly intense fear without therapy. And then I interviewed them with a lie detector and paid a hundred bucks to everybody who told the truth about getting over it. And they all told me almost exactly the same story. They said, you know, there was a point in my life where I started to get fed up. I started to imagine myself doing this for the rest of my life. And I saw myself doing it over and over again. It felt so stupid. And, you know, and, you know, and then they describe how they changed the pictures or they flipped the pictures or, you know, or they started looking at themselves, you know, not being afraid and wanting it more. And this one shrinking and that one getting bigger. And as, as I got the details of how they fought their way through it, I then could go turn around to somebody and have somebody else do the same thing and get the same result. And with, in sales, the same thing is true. If, if you can gather the right information about how they actually make decisions, you can save yourself enormous amounts of time. So, you know, when, when I was selling cars and people would walk in, I'd go, you know, you're obviously looking for a car. And I would point at the car they were looking at and I go, I'm worried this is not the right one. Have you ever bought anything and known it was the right thing? And I watched their eye movements because when people recall things, their eyes move to a different direction. They go up and to the left. And when they construct images, their eyes go up and to the right if they're right-handed. If their watch is on the other arm, you reverse it. But if I pay close enough attention to how they're thinking about it, and then I go, what was it? And they go, oh, well, you know, I, I, I bought a car once before. I really loved that car. you know. And I go, well, how did you know it was going to be the right car? And they'll go, well, I could really see myself in it. I could see it in a driving with my friends. I could see this. I could see that. And whatever they describe, it tells me they're thinking in pictures. And if I have the right pictures, they're going to buy the car. Some people go, well, you know, I imagine being inside the car driving, you know, and I, and I, you know, I heard people making, you know, as I go by, I could hear people saying comments about it. So they're more auditory and whatever it is, people will describe to you the model of how they make good decisions in their mind. Cause there's nothing worse than selling people things that, and having them complain about it later. Right. Uh, you have to be able to inoculate people against buyer's remorse and you have to help people to make the right decision. And you also have to get commitments from them to send you other people. If it's the right decision. That's, now that is something that is so exponentially important. Getting referrals how would you set it up because so many people in my trainings and, and want to know how do i get referrals and this is a big stumper for a lot of salespeople. when when how did you manage to get referrals when you were selling cars well i did something really crazy uh, uh i would take the contract i actually did it with china before cars because i did a sales training at a china place and uh but when, you know, because a lot of times when you sell stuff door to door, uh, people, after you've sold it to them and you're gone, 
people come in and go, oh, you bought it from a door-to-door salesman. You probably got ripped off, you know. Uh, you know gee whiz, they didn't add the cost of a building and electricity. And, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what the logic of that is. But, you know, a lot of people go, if you buy it from a door-to-door salesman, you got robbed. Uh, I don't even know if they have door-to-door salesmen anymore. But in, and what I used to do is take the contract and I'd go, look, you warn people, you inoculate them, you go, your friends are going to say, you know, you probably got ripped off. Everybody's going to do everything to make you regret this so that when it happens, they don't consider it. They go, he predicted this. And then I take the contract and I start to rip it. And I go, I'm just going to tear this up right now. And people go, wait, like, like I couldn't fill out another one, you know, and it's like you're destroying the product. A $40,000 car, and I start ripping up the contract on, I don't think you really want this. And they, they go, wait. And I go, if you think I've treated you right and done the right thing by you, you're going to tell all your friends. And anytime anybody thinks about buying a car, you're going to send them to me. And uh, and so that you, you give them good, what I call post-hypnotic suggestions, or whether you call them that or not, we're all constantly giving ourselves suggestions that go into the future we call it future pacing that you know that you you want to avoid buyer's remorse you want to inoculate people against buyer's remorse and more importantly you want to make every signal that would make it possible that somebody could send you a client so that they go when somebody goes well i really like your car you go well let me introduce you to the salesman uh you know people say to you you know uh i i'm i'm thinking of buying a car you go i know somebody who will treat you right and I went to this length. I, I did something one day. A guy came in, was looking at this Mercedes sports car and, you know, and he had this goo goo look on his face and uh, walked up to him. And I said, you know, I said, so you're single. And he goes, no, no. He goes, I have four kids and a wife. And I said, and you're thinking of buying this car? And he goes, well, he goes, you know, I guess my wife has a station wagon. I said, oh, so you don't like sex. And he said to me, he goes, what? I said, you drive around in this sports car, make your wife drive a big, ugly station wagon. I said, uh, you know, see, this is, this is this is not going to work out. I said, why do you want to drive a sports car? And he goes, I like the power. And I said, I have an idea. So I took him down the street to another car lot and uh, showed him an Oldsmobile. In those days, had an Oldsmobile station wagon with an aluminum block uh, V8 and a, and a big special transmission. And it was like a hot rod even though it would hold nine people. Uh, I knew somebody I knew used it to tow a race car. And I used to drive a station wagon around sometimes. And it was like a hot rod. You know, it looked like a station wagon, but it was fast. It was lightweight and handled really well. And and you had a a thing where the tailgate would open in two ways. And the back behind the tailgate would turn into a seat. And, uh, you know, and I went through the whole thing with him and showed him the car. We went for a test drive. Then I came back and I negotiated against the salesman at that car lot for him, you know, because they went in the back and then came out. And he said, my manager. And then I said what the manager said, because I read lips pretty good and uh, got him this thing. And then when we went back, he looked at me and he goes, why did you do this for me? And I said, because now every time anybody mentions buying a car, you're going to send them to me. And uh, I got in the next week. And referrals from wow. him. We went about it to everybody. Forgive me for pushing the pause button. Um, before we dive back into, uh, you, here's what I want to ask you. You have such an extraordinary 
flexibility in your thinking to turn things around and go, wait a minute, here's an unconventional solution. You're so flexible in your thinking and so able to look outside the box of what other people do. Did you have an influence for that? Did you have a parent or was that always the way you thought? How did you learn or was it just a natural thing in your head to be so flexible and contrarian in your thinking? Well, part of it, I I think, is back to playing music that, you know, uh, if you make a mistake in music and you repeat it three times, it becomes jazz uh, that, you know, that there really are no mistakes there. You know, there are 12 notes and you can put them in infinite number of combinations and it's it's based on the rhythm of it. And if you if, if you know, like a, when I was playing guitar, I, my hands aren't that big and I'd have trouble making some of the chords. So I literally made up a new way to do it. There's always another way to do it, another place to play it, you know, another way to hold it. And uh, that, I, you know, I didn't learn from other people, so I don't play correctly. Every time I play the piano, people look at me who play piano. And go, they always go, you know, your fingering on that is completely incorrect. And I go, yeah, I go, but I've been doing it so long, I can't stop now. Uh, you know, to me, it's, it's about what I hear. It's the result. And if, if you're interested in the result and your brain isn't going, this little result, but you have a longer view of things that when I started out to see clients, I didn't ever thought I'd have the career that I've had. You know, I, psychiatrists told me about their patients and I'd go, I'd like to meet them. And then I'd start asking them questions to try to figure out how it was possible to do what they were doing. Not, not how to, to get them to stop it, but you know, when they come in and they, you know, would tell me, you know, that they have nightmares and I go, well, you know, how do you know which nightmare to have? And they would, they would look at me and they'd go, they'd go, that's a really weird question. And I go, well, do you think about stuff before you go to sleep? You know, what do you do? Because, you know, how, how would one accomplish this? And if you think of the human condition as a series of accomplishments, there are accomplishments that are wanted and some that aren't wanted. Right. And if it's one that you don't want, then you have to do, go about it differently. And, and you don't have to just go about it. But I never thought about it as in, as doing it because people would always go. So you took the guy in out, uh, you know, he's terrified of pigeons and you had him run through a room thrill of pigeons. I did this at a conference once with a psychologist who was terrified of pigeons. And there were there were, I think, 650 analysts, psychoanalysts and a couple of hundred psychiatrists and a couple of hundred psychologists. And since I was not licensed, they wouldn't let me see what they called a real patient. And uh, I said, fine, you know. And so I said, who, who, who here's got a big fear? And, and three people turned around and pointed at this guy and said, pigeons. We couldn't even, we had to bring him around the back to get him in the building. He's terrified of pigeons. So I brought him on the stage. I did something. I had him go out and chase around a bunch of pigeons, come back in. And uh, I said, how was it? And he goes, he goes, I guess it was fine. I chased him all over the place. He said, it was actually kind of fun. And uh, the psychiatrist that raises his hand and goes, well, Mr. Bandler. And I said, okay, call me whatever you want. And he goes, he goes, isn't it true that this is either going to come back, with, uh, you know, in a few weeks or a month, or it's going to come out somewhere else? And I go, what exactly does that mean? You know, does that mean he's going to grow feathers? I mean, what are you talking about? 
And he said, well, if you suppress a symptom, it has to come out somewhere else because the root cause is still there. And, uh, you know, these people don't understand physics. They call themselves scientists, but cause-effect relationships went out with Einstein. We now know that things are relative. They're true unless they're under certain conditions in which the whole right. game changes. Right. You know, uh, ohms and amps and, and, and resistance and electrical wires is absolutely a set true formula until you get to a certain uh, temperature. If it gets cold enough, all the rules change. You get super conductivity. Uh, yeah, you get super conductivity, which is a right, and it, it cha- the rules simply change, and you know, and the rules change depending upon what speed you're moving, and you know, the laws of the universe are not as fixed; they're not as laws as they would like us to believe. When I grew up, they used to tell us the atom was the smallest thing, and then in the next sentence, they would say it had three parts. Uh, you know. Uh, you call that science or you call that philosophy. And when you mix science with philosophy, you get stupidity. And this was rampant in the field of psychology uh, that, you know, they would go your inner person, you know, that when I started talking about accessing cues, which are neurologically wired, uh, you know, a neurologist found this, not me. She just didn't know what to do with it. Her name is Dorothy Kimura. I read it in a journal article. And uh, and I went out and tested it, and it works. And when people, there's a difference between con- remembered images and constructed images, and auditory internal, and you know you can see it all the time. Artists even have it in cartoons from the 1920s. You know, unconsciously, people have been picking up on this for centuries. But when I started talking about it, uh, you know, inevitably, when I would be giving lectures, somebody would raise their hand and say, "Well." I thought when people looked up, when you asked them a question, they were asking their parents for permission. And I would go, you know, what fucking idiot told you that? <laughs> so my parents aren't floating up there and they go, well, you know, I'm a TA person, you know. And so, you know, that's transactional analysis for those people who are watching and don't know. Right. And, you know, and they were taught to believe that and they never questioned it. So, when, you know, and then there was the whole thing about if you ask somebody a question and they look away, that they're avoiding something. Uh, that was even more nonsensical. They're thinking of the answer when they look away. We have to access information to represent it to our brains. So when people go, hmm, let's see, they are. Uh, I don't know how they missed it for so long. Gotcha. One of the things that always drove me crazy until I learned from you was yeah. I would go to events and they would say, well, just learn from every experience. But they never gave me a process or formula for doing it. They just told me to do it. And I would always give the analogy, that would be like if I'm driving my car and it breaks down in the desert, my phone has a little bit of a charge left. I call the mechanic. He says, well, you just have to adjust the fragile stat with the who is it. And then the phone dies. Uh, and I have no process to do it. That just drove me crazy. So when it, I know for anyone who's in the field of humor endeavor, particularly for salespeople, because they have to forgive my metaphor. I know it's only a metaphor and I apologize if it's incorrect or inaccurate, but they have to go up a learning curve. They have to learn from mistakes or experience. So do you have a process that you found is really quick and effective for learning from mistakes 
Well, to begin with, that if you look at the toughest clients that you have, my career was built on the fact that I had a cadre of psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers that sent me patients because no one could deal with them. What I asked for were, I said, who is, you know, I want somebody that everybody's given up on. And the reason I wanted them was, number one, there was nothing to lose. Number two, I had everything to learn. Because if I could develop a procedure, a protocol to help that person and send it back down through the system. And part of the reason I started doing training was because, you know, that there were there was a severe lack of these procedures. They now show up everywhere. There's something called positive psychology. and There are sales training programs that have pictures of the eye accessing cues. But yeah, if you don't, if you have a procedure, see, if, see, the trouble is if, if you can't close a sale, you don't know at what point you went astray, you know? So I've broken it down into steps so that, you know, you first you have to get people's attention. And, you know, if you don't have their attention, then you can't talk to them. And, so, you know, that may be they just walk up to them and say, hey, you know, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes you stand across the room and you go like this, make them come to you. And then when they get over there, you go, what? And they go, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted to talk to me. And you go, no, I'd love to talk to you. What are you, what are you here to buy? See, if you structure your language and, and so that you ask questions that lead to where you're going. And people go, well, you know, I was interested in getting some new chairs, right? And then you, you go, well, how will you know if you're interested enough to buy them? And exactly what would be the perfect chair? How are you deciding what would be the perfect chairs to buy? And they go, well, I'm trying them out. You know, they have to feel right. That's different than if they go, they have to look a certain way. I mean, right. you know, it, you know maybe a combination of both, but you need to gather enough information about how this person makes decisions so that you can package your language so that it matches the way they think maximally so that you can take the path of least resistance. And then you need to inoculate them against, uh, you know, so that they, they don't have buyer's remorse of any kind. Because a lot of times people come in, they sit down with you, they, you know, they take you in, they sit you at a table, they write down all the things that you want and they slide it across the table. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people, when you ask them about things they regret and things they don't like, look down because those are all in their mind down. Right. And so they're spatially anchoring all those feelings to the. Right. And to avoid that, I always recommend clipboards so that you can give somebody a clipboard so that they can keep it up at eye level. In fact, I put my thumb on the pen and as I hand them the clipboard, I lift my pen up. And it rolls down, and when they grab it, they're, in, they're kind of in between thoughts, and I'll go, just sign it. And a lot of people will sign it, and then I go and feel good. And I go, now let's talk about what this means. And, you know, a lot of people dilly-dally around. They explain every little detail. I'll explain it to them, and I'll tell them, now you can tear it up if you want, or you can go home with beautiful furniture. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's your attitude. You have to build this belief that says you can sell anything to anybody, anytime, anywhere. The only question is how you go about it. Right. You have to know where to start. You need a roadmap and then you need lots of techniques and procedures so that you have 20 different ways of describing the same thing to a person based on how they think, not how you right. think. 
This You're means not you have more yourself. And this means you have more flexibility in the system. Right. You have requisite variety. Flexibility is everything. If you don't have flexibility, then you're limited in, in your ability to, to deal with the world. It's, it's like, you know, uh, when I listen to people talk about politics, uh, you know, some of them are, all I have to do is say a word and they have an anxiety attack. And uh, especially when Trump was around, it was really easy. You could just go Trump, 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 and people would start freaking out. Right. You know, and uh, it, it's because you know I, I'm sorry, but I can listen to any wacky point of view. I've been doing it for years, whether they're schizophrenic or political or philosophical. You know, uh, you know I remember this guy who thought he was a Buddhist coming coming back with my wife, who picked up all kinds of strangers along the way. She told me he had this energized stuff. And, and I asked him, I said, now exactly do you energize it? And, uh, you know, I've studied all kinds of psychics and psychic energies over the years. You think that's real? Let me interrupt you. In some cases, in some cases, it's very real. And in some cases, it's ridiculously not real. In this case, I, I believe it was ridiculously not real. And I said, I said, how do you charge this? And he goes, well, you could only understand that if you've given up attachment to everything that could interfere with your ego. And he said proudly, "I'm egoless." <laughs> I went, I went, okay. And I said, you know, now it's time for you to leave. And but I sat and listened to him do his feel. You, you know, if you feel you have to agree with people to listen to them, the world's going to be an unpleasant place. And this is what's been going on. People were locked up so long that when they came out, they'd been listening to the same TV station too long. I've heard between all of them because, you know, when I grew up, there used to be news reporters and there are none left. Now they're all advocates of something and they're all trying to persuade us with every detail, what they tell us and what they don't tell us. And, you know, and then late night comedians or, you know, they're still trashing Trump. He's not even around. Wait till he comes back to trash him. You know, and, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't matter how ridiculous other things are. They don't make fun of them because they're not really a comedian. They're a political satirist. And, uh, you know, I can listen to them and laugh at it. I don't care. But, you know, I don't have to agree with people. Uh, the only thing I have to see, some people are, are, are their reference structure is how other people think and believe. So if you disagree with them, they get agitated. Uh, that's the very foundation of getting people into cults, by the way. And whether your cult is being a Democrat or a Republican, it's still a cultish belief if you can't listen to people talk about other things. Right. right. You know, it's, you know, it, me, I always want to understand how people can believe stupid things. Because if I can understand how they can believe it, there's a chance I might be able to make them smarter. And uh, that. To me, it's you're either getting smarter or you're getting dumber, and it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. Yeah. That works in either direction. If if you're not trying to find out the foundation of things and explore things, I had people, you know, complaining about that bills that didn't get passed, and and when I'd ask them, I'd go, "Have you read the bill?" And they would go, "Well, no, but I know what's in it." And I go, well, "How do you know that?" And they go, "Well, because they describe it on the news." And I go, "Did did they claim to have read it?" You know, because <laughs> me, I would want to go read it and see what's in the bill before I make a big deal and feel bad about the fact it didn't get passed. Uh, you have to do a lot to get me to want to feel bad. You know, um, 
uh, I've had a lot of people do crappy things to me in my lifetime. I know. And, I know. and I still don't feel bad about them. I, I might be a little annoyed by it, but I right. don't feel bad. I remember thinking about you. Justified. Forgive me. I remember thinking about you. This guy has been ripped off so many times, but he can create faster than other people can copy. Well, that somebody once asked me when when a lot of my technology was stolen, uh, and in fact, an office building and a lot of other things. They said, you know, how are you going to deal with it? And I said, I'm going to antiquate them. <laughs> And, you know, it seems like a much better use of my time, yeah. Yeah. even better technology than to worry about a technology, yeah. which, by the way, now is completely outdated. Yes, which is so innovative and constant. The other insight I have about you. Well, in, you... in science, we call that progress. Yes. Okay. You know, that, uh, uh, you know, I don't think NLP is a science. I think NLP is a model. Yes. And, you know, just like linguistics is a modeling behavior. Yes. And a lot of what they call science is a model. It's a model. Periodical right. chemical chart is not science. It's a right. model. It's a model. And by the way, we found out it's not true. Right. They didn't take the Nobel Prize back. Uh, you know, it, it still allows us to do certain things, but it doesn't allow you to do everything. Models are, are a way of describing things so that you can accomplish something. And uh, once it, you reach the limits of the model, you need a new model. That's all there is to it. Uh, that, you know, that the, the, the sign theory and, you know, wave theory don't match. They don't, but they're both useful. And in science, we accept that. We realize that everything in science at some point will become antiquated. Yes. Okay. Everything in science fiction will last forever, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the thing about lies is they will last forever because you don't, you don't test them because your desire is not to have a better description. Your description is more important than your experience. And when your description is more important than your experience, you're headed for trouble. Yeah. And if you think there's a right way to sell something, then you're going to just have a certain close ratio and do it for the rest of your life. And to do better, you're going to have to work longer hours and make, you know, more and more contacts. If, uh, if, if you change the way you go about doing things, then you'll, you'll close at a higher ratio and you'll spend, you'll be able, as I say, to quadruple your income in half the time. That should be your goal. <laughs> I talked to an entrepreneur, very successful at the age of 23. He said every morning he wakes up and he asks the question, how can I make twice as much money doing half the amount of work? which I thought was a really brilliant way to go about thinking. Well, that's called aiming your mind. If you don't aim your mind, it doesn't explore the possibilities. You know, if you, if you, if you're asking yourself all the time, what's going to go wrong, you know, you'll find it. And your brains are really good at that. You know, you aim a brain, it goes there. It doesn't really have emotional considerations. It's, it's, you know, it's not intellectual. It's the motor, you know, when I wrote the book, using your brain for a change, you know, in the introduction of the book, we, uh, you know, basically the first chapter, I lay it out and I go, look, you know, your brain is going to run on and you're either going to take charge of it or it's going to run wherever it's going. And it doesn't it doesn't give it doesn't have good or bad feelings. It just has a motor that runs and right. it's based on your neurology and your neurology is either going to if somebody isn't driving the bus, then the bus is going to be out of control. 
Correct. And, yeah. and if, if, if anything, you can do to take control of your thoughts. And, you know, a lot of people go in and they go, I can't stop thinking about something. Well, that's because there's no owner's manual, you know, that the mechanic didn't tell them how, I didn't tell them that, you know, if pictures are too big and they're overwhelming you, put a border around them and make them small. Do it quickly and it will stay that way. Do it slowly and it won't. Because yeah, it's, right. it's easier yeah. to change quickly than it is to change slowly. I've noticed this because I have an infant in my life, uh, my ex-girlfriend's baby, and I've watched this kid learn so quickly. And I thought, wow, she was like an adult and said, why can't I lift the bottle to my lips yet? Uh, <laughs> she'd be stuck. But I've watched her develop from not being able to lift the bottle, from holding it with both hands. And now that she knows how to do it, she's enthusiastic about doing it. There's no crying involved. And and I think infants learn so much faster than adults. Success in the human thinking is based on acceleration, not based, not based on reviewing your mistakes. Yeah, that's what I've seen her do. It's mistakes remarkable. only tell you what to avoid. So as you're accelerating into the future, you have to, you have to make sure you don't do the things that didn't work. You know, right. If you reach down and touch the hot coal and it burned your fingers... Your brain should be looking at hot coals going hot coals, not saying warm moss, um, you know, that uh, your, your brain, you know, the questions that you ask, questions are like knives. They take the world of experience and slice some things off and leave others. So if you ask, you know, what stops me, you find out what stops you. If you go, why can't I do something? You get reasons why you can't. And if you ask the question, what would happen if I did? Uh, you know, how can I do this faster? You know, what what other way could I think about this to get to it quicker? Who can help me do this? Who would know the answer to this question? Who's done this before? You know, there's far too many people trying to reinvent the wheel. And, uh, you know, like a lot of my students are asking, you know, for a detailed thing of what I had to do to go through to learn things. And I go, you don't want to do that. It took me years, it took me 50 years to get here. You want to start where I am and go somewhere new. Right. Right. I want to uh, circle back to something and then I'll let you go because you've been so generous with your time, Richard. I, I know you. Uh, so I want to circle back to something when it comes to wanton motivation. You brought up your someone you met who was a Buddhist and claimed you had to detach from ego. And I've actually done some study of Buddhism. There's a teacher I met who's actually super brilliant. I'll talk to you about him off the air. But how do you maintain wanton motivation without being... Okay, again, you don't maintain it. You turn it off and on. Everything needs an on-off switch. Okay. How you do you turn it on? down to bed, close your eyes, and be wantonly motivated. Right. How do you turn it on? And be wantonly okay. well, motivated. Everybody knows how to turn it on. Okay. No, that's not what I meant. With respect. Excuse me. How, how do you turn on? How do you turn it on, Richard, without being overattached to the outcome? Well, that's that's a different question. Uh, but first, you have to turn it on, and then you have to aim it. And uh, see, if 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 you get motivated to accomplish a certain thing. You can't decide how that's going to be accomplished. Otherwise, you will become attached to the result. Okay. You know, if, 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 if you're building a business, right, or you're selling a car, and you think there's just one procedure that works, and you get real motivated, and that procedure doesn't work, then you get frustrated. 
But if you believe that the, that this person's capable of buying a car, right, whether it's yours or somebody else's, you know, it's, it's only a question of what car, when, and how is, and then you have to ask the big question, how is this going to benefit me? Because if, if, if what you're selling, I was selling Mercedes. So some people, it was just the wrong car. So I wanted that person to buy some other car, get a good deal, and then come back and send me people who would buy Mercedes. And it was just that simple because that was the only benefit I could see towards me. Everything else wouldn't be a good use of my time. If I let them walk away, I'm letting possibilities walk away with them. And first you have to realize that every feeling you have, the first thing you need to know is what direction does it go? Because feelings don't hold still. You don't have a feeling. It doesn't stand still. Neurologically, we have something called the entemic nervous system. So what people call feelings either circle forward, circle back, clockwise or counterclockwise, because it's the connections between all your hollow, solid organs, intestines, all of those things form a neural net that goes up to your brain. And it goes on to your kinesthetic cortex as, as much as your sense of touch and everything else does. Uh, so when you have a feeling, so if you think of the most motivated you've been, you take your finger and whatever you're thinking about, so you have a memory of being really motivated to something, double the size of it, it'll spin faster. And you want to know, does it go forward, backwards, clockwise, or counterclockwise? Once you know that, then you think of things that are difficult for you, and you take that feeling and you spin it on purpose. And you spin it faster and faster and faster, you will become more motivated. But you can't get motivated because you think of the result. You have to think of what you're going to do. The question is, where do I start? What do I do next? The reason my sales program has the steps in it it does is so that you have a roadmap. I've got his attention. Now I'm gathering information. Now I'm packaging information. Now I'm testing for clothes. And now I'm inoculating him against buyer's remorse. And I'm getting him to send me new contacts. Got it. Right. Now, knowing that, then you take the techniques that you have, you know, what information can I get? Well, I have to know about how he thinks about things. Is he thinking in pictures, words, feelings? And if so, in what order? Because he might be making pictures and having feelings about them. Uh, and, and what kind of pictures? Is he in the pictures? How big are they? Are, as he makes decisions, do they get closer? A lot of people, if a picture is too far away, can't make a decision. Right. That as, they, as you just talk to things, sometimes you can just stand behind them and push the picture forward. And they'll start to become more convinced of things. And, uh, but you have to ask about it. You have to have an interest. If you think of yourself as a decision engineer, then you're not, instead of a salesman, a salesman's purpose is to sell a car. A decision engineer is to get somebody to make a perfect decision. So they buy the right car with the right things the right furniture so that they come back and back and send people and send people and send people. The perfect sale should produce the perfect storm of referrals. And uh, that's the way I think about it from the very beginning. I don't think about it at the end. I go, okay, now it's time for referrals. I know that if I don't get the perfect information to make the perfect sale and attach the perfect feelings to that sale, because I want them to not just be convinced now. I want it to be one of those things where it lasts forever. So that every time they go out and look at the fence they bought for me, they go, man, you know, in fact, the fence I bought from somebody, 
he, he retired and I still have regrets because I can't get my gate repaired by somebody. I have to get my gate repaired by somebody else and they never do as good a job. You know, I, I want people that take pride in their work. And what was missing in the sales field was the ability to be proud about anything but numbers. The procedure should be something. If you're wow. careful, you gather the right information. You teach people how to make better judgments than they're making. You teach them to make a good judgment about what they're doing so that they, they don't buy the wrong thing. They buy the perfect thing. Wow. And then you attach it to them becoming connected with you and your circle of influence. If you sell a house, you want that person to send you other people to buy houses. Absolutely. Why would you send somebody you sell a house to a newsletter every month if you didn't want them to sit? Because you want them when they buy rental property, when they, when they uh, uh, buy their next house, uh, when their friends buy houses. You, you, want, you want to keep your name in their head and you want it attached to wonderful feelings. So your newsletter shouldn't just be about how good you're doing. It should be things that make people feel good so that they look forward to looking at it and don't just throw it out as a newsletter, but that they enjoy reading about it. And if you talk about how, you know, if they met your family, I know a real estate agent down in San Antonio that has his people to buy houses, come over for barbecues. And, it's, you know, and somebody said to him, you're wasting money. Those people have already bought a house. Well, yeah, but then they start talking about having rental property. They start talking about if they want to downsize or upsize, you know, you're either in business for a minute or you're in business for years. Wow. Wow. Brilliant. I, and um, I remember you saying, and forgive me if I'm mangling or misquoting, you said you're never selling a product or service. You're selling decisions and good feelings about decisions. Is that a mangling of what you said or is that an accurate quote? It's, it's, it's not how I would say it, but it's, it's, it's a good description, right? Because, you know, that, they, they buy a house, but if they, don't, if they don't walk up to it and feel like they did the right thing every day, they're not going to talk about it to other people. You have to make it so that they feel so good about it, they can't stop talking about it. And, uh, you know, that a lot of people walk up to their house, they don't even notice it. And when they buy that house, I'm going to take them over there and stand in front of it and take that moment and make sure they feel proud. And that, you know, this is why they work all day so they can come home and open that door and look at these rooms and know they get to do anything they want with them. And that not only is it a house, it's an investment, you know, maybe the most expensive thing they buy in their life. And, you know, that, you know, it's like the reason I sold expensive cars uh, primarily was because the guy's father was depressed because of the oil crisis back in the 70s. Looks like we're headed for another one, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, seems like our current president doesn't get the idea that if you're running out of shit, you need to get more of it. <laughs> and, and if it's bad for the environment, it doesn't matter where you get it from, whether you get it from Venezuela or America, uh, you know, that, that we, we need as we make transitions, because at some point, you know, we're going to make transitions to cleaner fuels. But, you know, if we try to force things to happen, then there's going to be a price to pay. And always the price is paid by the poor. We need to make good decisions because inflation hurts the poorest people the most. You know, it's, it's not me that's going to get killed by it. I can afford to pay more for a steak, but I'm afraid, you know, there are people in this country who can't. And people, we're, we're starting to feel good about making more money. 
And now this inflation is getting out of control. And, uh, it, it, you know, the way to control inflation is not to spend more money. You know, there's, there's a point at which we're going to have to do something about our budget in America. We have to learn to live within our means and, you know, and to understand the, the way to deal with all of this is to get the economy to grow, to grow by the principles by which it grows the best. And we know that you can examine historically and look when the economy was growing the best and what the rules were at that time. And you can figure it out. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. I think the last president to balance the budget was was Bill Clinton. And uh, so it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. It matters what policies you have. And the policies by which you run your business will determine how good you feel about yourself. If you want to feel good about yourself, do the right thing for the right reason. And if, you know, and because you sell encyclopedias doesn't mean you have to feel bad about yourself. They're wonderful. And, you know, uh, there are so many things. The largest profession on the earth is people selling things. And uh, they should they should have a technology as sophisticated as physics or anything else. And I've tried to provide that foundation. And I realize I've only written one book about it, but I've taught a lot of seminars about it. And a lot of this information leaks over into sales training programs all over the world uh, and at Fortune 500 companies and real estate companies. Richard, you've been so generous with your time. I know you're a very busy man. And uh, as I said, I would not have had my life path or my career even but passes for sanity were it not for you. So I thank you again from the bottom of my heart. If people want to connect with your seminars and your courses and the rest of it, how would they go about doing it? What link would they use? Uh, PureNLP.com, RichardBandler.com. Okay. Probably the best ones. All right. Richard, thank you so much. Um, Stay with me because I have a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Thanks, folks, for joining the Influencer's Edge. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack of sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on The Influencers Edge Show.